I think we're all here because we understand in some profound way that we are failing our community. And so I think Representative Long. And for me, the other issue is the um, impermeability of the system. My flesh and blood, my heart and soul is gone because of someone else's inability to take care of him. And what I want you to know is not only, not only is the Arizona House of Representatives listening to you, the Speaker of the House is listening to you, as well as the Governor's Office and the entire Arizona Legislature. Welcome to The Gaggle, an AZ Central podcast where we chat with reporters, experts, and special guests to keep you fully informed on the state's political news. I'm your host, Yvonne Winget Sanchez. I cover national politics for the Arizona Republic. And I'm Ron Hansen, also a national reporter for the Republic. Today, we're talking about vulnerable adults. These are folks that we all know and love. One in five Arizonans are considered vulnerable adults. And generally, these are people who are over the age of 18 who are unable to protect themselves from abuse, neglect, or exploitation by others because of a physical or a mental impairment. They can include elderly Arizonans and adults of all ages who have disabilities including physical illness, mental illness, dementia, chronic drug use, or chronic intoxication. You may remember the story of the woman who was at the Hacienda Care Facility. Today, our big story of the afternoon, an arrest made in the case of a patient with significant intellectual disabilities who gave birth at a Phoenix healthcare facility. This was someone who was raped and she gave birth after she was raped by a caregiver. 36-year-old Nathan Sutherland was booked into the Maricopa County Jail this morning on one count of sexual assault and one count of vulnerable adult abuse. And this was perhaps maybe an extreme example of how a vulnerable adult can be exploited in today's episode, we're going to talk with Stephanie Innes. You're familiar with her. She's our health reporter, and she is rolling out a series on vulnerable adults. Stephanie, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. You began asking questions about vulnerable adults in the wake of the Hacienda story, where, again, a patient at a care center was raped and gave birth. Why did that prompt you to answer larger questions about how Arizona handles its vulnerable adults. Because when this happened, a lot of advocates in the disability community, while shocked by the rape and birth, also said it's reflective of what's happening with vulnerable adults in this state, that there is a lot of abuse, neglect, and exploitation going on, and it often isn't getting detected, and I wanted to know why. So you spent about three months talking to folks who are in the system, gathering records and data, talking to families and patients and such. What did you find? I found a lot of problems in the existing system of protecting vulnerable adults. And I really focused a lot of my research on Adult Protective Services, which is a division of Arizona's Department of Economic Security. I also spent a lot of time, in fact, I attended all the hearings of a legislative task force, which was headed by uh, Representative Jennifer Longdon, a Democrat from Phoenix. 
We're going to go ahead and begin with our presentations. We'll start with our presentation from Beatitude. And it was a task force on vulnerable adults and, and how we're not protecting them and how we could do better. I think we're all here because we understand in some profound way that we are failing our community. And so I think... So give us a sense of what kinds of complaints we're talking about with this. Obviously the rape case is sort of uh, exceptional and, and clear what happened, but give us a sense of the, the full spectrum of what we're, we're, is involved in these kinds of matters. There are a lot of cases where um, people either didn't get the medication that they were supposed to get in, um, in institution settings, like in assisted living or nursing homes. Um, there's cases where somebody gets ill. Madam Chair, committee, um, I'm here to speak on behalf of my son, Darian. Um, I'm going to try and get through this the best I can without crying. And the person complaining, say a family member, says, you know, the caregivers should have noticed. On June 19th of 2018, Darian woke up in the middle of the night that my loved one was doubled over in pain and he crawled all the way from his bedroom to the living room so that he could talk to the staff. The staff redirected him to his bed. The following day, the group home staff took Darian to a day program where he spent his days and dropped him off. The day program staff called me and told me that something was seriously wrong with my son. Maybe they get to the hospital too late and it's a serious complication or... They transported him to the hospital several hours after being dropped off at the day program. The ER was scared to deal with Darian because of his health conditions and they didn't want to handle him with his diagnosis. So they transported him to Children's Hospital. <laughs> at nine o'clock, they brought Darian into emergency surgery and at 11.30 that night, they told me that there was a twist in his intestine that resulted in a rupture. The rupture had gone untreated for so long that he was in sepsis and was going into organ failure. You know, even the person ends up dying. My son passed away at 12.21 on June 21st. I never got to say goodbye or hear him tell me that he loved me one last time. My flesh and blood, my heart and soul is gone because of someone else's inability to take care of him. You know, there's a lot of things like that in, especially in institutional settings where you think your loved one isn't being cared for well enough. The lack of training and having proper groom Proper staff in group homes is a large contributor to his passing. And then, um, you know, out of the home, like, or, or out of institutional settings in family homes, you have uh, vulnerable adults who maybe aren't, uh, you know, it's clear they're not bathing regularly. Um, they seem to be withdrawn, isolated, or there may be signs of financial exploitation going on where, you know, one family member notices that all the property their mother owns has been transferred to maybe a family friend, and, um, and that wasn't necessarily what they thought their mother wanted.
That's terrible stuff. I, with my own parents, I had complaints and um, issues that I would want to bring up to folks over in Idaho. And I, it was difficult navigating that system there. And it sounds yeah. as though it's difficult navigating the system here in Arizona. It's very difficult. For families yeah. and consumers and people who are really trying to maybe report problems and areas of concern. Uh, what did your reporting say about that? About the difficulty navigating the mm -hmm. system. Okay, well, this was what I really struck me when I was doing my reporting is how fragmented and confusing our system is in Arizona. Especially when you look around this committee and we see all the agencies and all the groups that you do this 24 7, 365, and, and you're overwhelmed and you're trying to figure out how the system works amongst, amongst the different agencies. I mean, the, the consumer is going to have a heck of a time almost beyond the pale how many different entities you can complain to and and I don't know how people are supposed to know that you know there's no brochure there's nothing that tells you all these places that you can complain to and and for me the other issue is the um, impermeability of the system we have a number of, of agencies that each one within their their specific silo is doing their level best but but individuals coming into this system don't understand that they are separate compartments that don't necessarily um, communicate at the level where the people are. Up, up here they do, but not down here where the people are necessarily. It's impermeable for most people. So who are the agencies, the, the main agencies that have responsibility for protecting this population? Just give us a, a quick summary of what the different, you know, chain of command is for, for those agencies. You know, there's various entities that have responsibility. So just to give you some examples, there's adult protective services where you can complain if somebody's been abused, neglected, or exploited. However, if it's imminent danger, of course, you have to call 911. But then the Attorney General's office has a helpline that you can complain to. There is an area agency on aging that actually in inspects facilities and will act as an ombudsman between families and facilities. And then there's the Arizona Department of Health Services, which also inspects facilities and will take complaints. And people are somehow supposed to know the difference between whether you're going to complain to ADHS or APS. There's also a board of nursing home administrators and assisted living managers. There's the board of nursing. There's the Arizona Medical Board. And these entities can all get involved when there is an issue with vulnerability adults. So given the fact that the legislature has created a task force, it seems as though lawmakers are aware that this is an issue. Yes, there's a lot of awareness that this is an issue. In fact, there have been two reports. There was another task force that Governor Ducey convened that has already issued a report. Uh, this task force, uh, Jennifer Longdon's task force, has given 11 recommendations to the legislature, and there are other, um, there's another report due as well from the Arizona Disability Council. So a vast majority of complaints, according to your findings, are not verified or substantiated, and these are complaints that are sent to the state's adult protective services. Can you kind of take us through why it's so difficult to 
uh, maybe verify some of those complaints and other issues that might be hampering the state's ability to um, verify some of these complaints by family members and friends and others? Sure, yeah. So substantiated means that they actually find a perpetrator. Verified means that they find evidence that whatever was complained about abuse, neglect, or exploitation actually happened. Both those rates are, are very low. Together, they're less than 10%. Uh, the substantiation rate in the last uh, fiscal year posted was less than 1% for abuse. And you know, if you ask the state officials with the Division of uh, Adult Protective Services, they tell you it can be hard to prove. Sometimes there's family members involved, and you know they're taking care of the vulnerable adult, and there's family dynamics at play, where you know you don't want to upset whoever is looking after you. There also could be um, family abuse, but the person is is afraid to say what's really happening. Um, then you also have witnesses who may be cognitively impaired, um, and it's hard to interview them. Um, and this is an ongoing issue that the Department of Developmental Disabilities does not provide ASL services for its deaf members. And then also with adults, you know, they have a right to live the way they want. It's not like children where you can actually remove them from the home. Adult Protective Services doesn't have that power, and adults have the right to live the way they want to. So there are some cases of self-neglect, and it's hard to prove those cases and really do something about it. So give us a sense of why this should matter for the public more broadly, that it's so difficult to navigate this kind of a system. Well, that's a great question. And the reason is that a lot of times, you know, when we're talking about vulnerable adults, we're not just talking about people who get old. I mean, you know, we all are getting older every day, and some of us plan for that, others don't. And, you know, but... When somebody's a vulnerable adult, it can take you by surprise. You know, Jennifer Longdon is a really good example. Between today and when we convene next time, I will observe the 15th anniversary of my own injury. She was not elderly. I'm not sure how old she was when it happened, but she was shot in a drive-by shooting with her fiance when they were going to get tacos one night at a drive-thru, and, you know, she was paralyzed. And I, uh, to this day, require caregivers. I have private caregivers who come into my home every single day. And she made several comments during these task force meetings that she never expected to be in this position. No one in this room expects that you're going to be the next person that acquires a disability. But for every one of us, it is going to happen, whether you, uh, you know, you're injured or acquire an illness or whether you age into it. So who is supposed to be the watchdog here? Who is the monitor? So all of a sudden, here you are having to navigate this. Or in another example, a couple that gives birth, you know, they have their first or second child. The child has disabilities. They're not expecting that. They need to learn how to navigate that system. And then eventually that child is going to become an adult. And that's where some of the problems occur. You know, they, they can navigate the system when the, the child is under the age of 18 and then over the age of 18 things get a little different and more complicated. Your reporting also found problems with this watch list of bad caregivers. 
Yes. So the Arizona Department of Economic Security through Adult Protective Services keeps what they call a registry. And it's a registry of quote unquote known perpetrators of of vulnerable adults. And it actually has a lower burden of proof than the criminal justice system. So, you know, if anybody out there has a vulnerable adult in their family or you're looking to hire a caregiver, it's really uh, helpful to reference this list because the person you're hiring may not have a criminal record, but they may be on this list. And there has been an issue where there has been very little publicity of this list, um, but uh, there are about 1,500 names on it, and um, you know it's neglect, exploitation, abuse. Most of them are financial exploitation, is what I found. But it'll give you the perpetrator's name and their date of birth. There are a lot of things missing from it. It doesn't tell you where the the abuse, neglect, or exploitation happened. If it happened in a facility, it often doesn't tell you that. But it does give a description of um, the abuse and neglect that and exploitation that happened. And, and I will say some of the descriptions are horrific. It sounds like some of these problems broadly with how the state uh, handles complaints um, involving those vulnerable adults, these problems have been around for a long, long time. Why so long? Well, I think, you know, there's a number of reasons for that. Um, One of the issues I found is that the investigators for Adult Protective Services have too many caseloads. And in some cases, they're not being trained properly. You know, there's a lot of complaints from people in the hearing impaired community saying that these investigators will come and interview them, but they're not using any sign language interpreters. And they're relying, say, on the person's husband or parent or somebody else to translate. Well, the problem with that is that it could be that person's husband is abusing them and they're afraid to say, or the husband is giving you the wrong translation. So it's really key that those investigators either know sign language or bring an interpreter with them, and that's not happening. I reviewed a behavior plan of a member who had some severe self-injurious behaviors and was severely aggressive. The member also was identified as autistic, had an intellectual disability, and was nonverbal and has a severe to profound hearing loss. Um, This member has gone for years, probably his entire adult life, with no communication in his first language, which is ASL. So my job is to point out to the committee or answer the question, are his human rights being violated? And I very clearly said yes. And that was a big uh, point of contention during the hearings. And also just um, there was a lot of feeling among disability advocates that investigators are not properly trained to interview people with disabilities, that often they can be good. You know, somebody with Down syndrome can be a great witness, but they're sometimes not trusted or the investigator isn't properly trained in how to best interview that person. So giant caseloads, awful uh, anecdotal stories. This is something that we heard not that long ago involving the Department of Child Services here in Arizona. 
elected officials acted on that situation. They, they revamped that agency in an effort to try and change the basic functioning of that agency in addressing this very serious problem. Why hasn't that happened with this group, this population, with the vulnerable adults? You know, at a federal level, there really isn't there's no direct funding for adult protective services, and there's very little direction. So states are left to do this on their own, kind of willy-nilly. So this isn't a problem unique to Arizona, but it's a problem that has just gone unnoticed um, for one reason or another. Uh, you know, uh, it's underfunded. It's $15.6 million, and the child uh, Department of Child Safety is $1 billion. Now, that's not saying that we're overfunding children, and it's not in any way saying that we're, you know, we don't need to do more for children. But by comparison, it does tell you a story in terms of vulnerable adults. And the other thing is, I think, you know, our population of older adults is growing, and it hasn't always been this issue where we're facing you know, by 2030, we're going to have as many people in Arizona over the age of 60 as we will under the age of 18. And that's a new issue. So that's one of the reasons that this is starting to get more attention now than it has in the past. And I can't really tell you specifically why this hasn't had more attention in the past. Um, you know, other than I don't know that as a society we pay enough attention to people who are vulnerable and can't advocate for themselves and um, sometimes they're not a you know a vocal community especially if they're elderly and and require dementia care but they're you know they're part of our community and and I think we should be taking better care of them it's the stories that move us to change and so that's what that's what what I'm left with from this experience is how do we 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 know many of these stories, but there are thousands of stories that we're not we're not necessarily hearing, and we won't necessarily hear. But how do we communicate those stories to those that ultimately are going to make make decisions and make can make change and have the power to make change? Can you give us a sense of how Arizona compares with other states in terms of how they care for their? Uh, vulnerable adults. You know, it's really hard to compare apples to apples because, as I said, there's no direction federally and there's no federal mandates the way there are with children. But I did look at some other states and there was actually a Wallet Hub survey that came out during my research um, that ranked states according to how well they protect elder adults. So this was only focused on elderly. It wasn't people with disabilities. But Arizona did rank in among the worst states in the country. Massachusetts was number one, and its budget was significant. It was more than double what Arizona's is for adult protective services. And then it had a separate agency for people 59 and younger who are vulnerable and or, or have disabilities or both. 
Well, you have helped put this issue on the public agenda. Um, what sense do you have about what the governor or the legislature might do to, uh, you know, either improve funding or uh, strengthen oversight of these agencies? What can we expect in the near term on this issue? I think that this is not the last we've heard of this. I know that the task force, the hearings I went to, they've actually recommended that their task force continue to meet this year, even though that wasn't the original plan. Again, I'm so grateful to be a part of this committee and hope that we can communicate what we all know and feel in a way that, um, that will create real change for the good. Um, you know, we're not doing any of these things intentionally, but there are some things we need to intentionally do better. And that really comes down to, for us, what legislation should be introduced in this coming session or in future sessions to address these issues for people with disabilities. The other thing that's happening is in the middle of my research, I got a notice from the Department of Health Services is they're going to actually have a statewide meeting next week on January the 23rd to address how we could improve adult protective services specifically. So, um, you know, there obviously are people who are aware that there are problems with this agency, that people are complaining, and they're just not feeling like you know, that the people in charge really care about their loved ones and they want someone to listen and they want someone to say your loved one matters and their safety matters. Very important question here. What are some resources for people who have complaints or are concerned about the care that their loved one is getting right now? Okay, um, so they can call um, the Adult Protective Services hotline if they if somebody suspects abuse, neglect, or exploitation. The the important thing to know is that that hotline does not run 24/7, which was one of the problems I found. So uh, you can leave a message, uh, but it's not running 24/7. Um, there is a 24/7 uh, message line with the Attorney General's office. Office and we'll leave the numbers on the website. Lonely seniors, I actually found a line, a free line with people who are trained to counsel depressed, vulnerable adults. It comes out of uh, San Francisco. It's called the Friendship Line, and that's open to anybody across the country. Such an important series. Thank you so much for tackling it. And Stephanie's uh, series is going to launch uh, next week, so please be sure to watch out for it. It'll be on azcentral.com and in your print edition for print subscribers, please subscribe. If you want to reach Stephanie, where can they find you on Twitter? At Stephanie Innes, which is Stephanie I-N-N-E-S. And you can follow me at Ronald J. Hansen, and that's H-A-N-S-E-N. And as always, you can find me at Yvonne Winchett. One more time, folks, if you are looking for some of those phone numbers that Stephanie mentioned, if you are concerned that a loved one or a friend, anyone is being um, neglected or abused, look for the contact numbers in the show notes. Hey, Gaggle listeners, just a reminder that on Friday, we'll have a special episode for you with our exclusive interview with Governor Doug Ducey after his State of the State address. Tune in. Please don't forget to rate and review our show. Please share it with a friend. Today's episode was edited and produced by Taylor Seeley with oversight from Katie O'Connell. 
Thank you so much for listening to The Gaggle, a podcast by the Arizona Republican, azcentral.com. We will see you next week.